what's up you guys and welcome back to the televised podcast my name is anna and today we're doing the super court video 2.0 or at least something very similar <laughs> i want to preface this whole thing by saying that this video will be different from my last super court video which i will link in the card and in the description in that video, I went over many parallels, tropes, and different types of evidence to push the Supergirl writers to make Supercorp canon before the show ended, which, obviously, as we now know, they did not do. Or did they? That's what I'm here to talk about today. The dichotomy of queer subtext and queer bait, where the line becomes blurred, and how Supercorp fits into that conversation. I think this is a much more productive conversation to be having around Supercorp, rather than pulling up more and more times where they blatantly treated Supercorp the same as they do their canon romantic couples, simply because it's pretty much all the same. I don't think there would be a whole lot of value in going over even more of the numerous times the Supergirl writers decided to use a similar scenario for Supercorp as they did for Brainia or vice versa, but I do think it's important to analyze Supercorp as a whole now that it's over. Also, just a preface, I am currently studying critical media analysis in college and have consulted a multitude of different sources for this episode, each of which will be linked in the description. I wanted to make this in order to prove that the Supercorp fandom is not crazy for having hoped, and to determine Supercorp's place in the very complicated conversation around queer storytelling on screen. To begin, I'd like to talk about queer subtext. Queer subtext, or also referred to as queer coding, is defined as using subtext to imply queerness without explicitly confirming a character's sexuality. It's often been used to explore queerness in a neutral way, especially when explicit queerness might not have been allowed otherwise. As pointed out in an article for Book Riot, this can be used in both positive and negative ways, either with good or bad intentions. In some ways, queer subjects can actually be good. A recent example that's very top of mind for me is the Pixar film Luca, uh, which dropped on Disney Plus in June of 2021 to critical praise and positive audience reception. It was a big hit. There's endless articles online saying that Luca should have been explicitly a queer story, but I would have to disagree. <laughs> I think keeping the meaning subtextual where the allegories between queerness and these little fish boys can be clearly seen by queer audiences, but maybe not as clearly by others, is a good thing. Where some people might want queer children's content to step out of the shadows, like with the Owl House or She-Ra, I would argue that some should stay subtextual so that kids can explore ideas of otherness and sexuality in a covert, neutral way. Specifically for children whose parents are homophobic or don't want their children watching explicitly queer shows like The Owl House or She-Ra, Luca provides a queer story that they would be able to watch safely. A subtextual film like Luca can allow kids the opportunity to explore queer themes in a neutral way, which could lead to further identity exploration down the road. The point is that it opens a dialogue, even if it's not an explicit one. Even beyond queer subtext in children's media specifically, it can be beneficial in adult media as well. As Molly McKinney argued in their article for Medium, queer subtext promotes intellectual engagement with media. As also echoed by Manuel Betancourt in Pacific Standard, queer subtext creates queer audiences that are attentive, active, and thoughtful viewers of media, which creates a type of media literacy that's important to have, especially in the overly saturated media age we live in. They both also argue that themes of stolen glances and a quiet love are reflective of actual queer relationships and queer life in general. But 
to quote Clark Griffin, Don't we deserve better than that? While it is true that some queer people are still forced to live their lives in the closet, I don't think it's fair to argue that all depictions in media should do the same. After all, the only way we'll make progress is through visibility, which, by definition, is not what queer subtext provides. On Supergirl specifically, defining Supercorp as a subtextual relationship is validating for those of us that have spent the last five years noticing the patterns and glances, but it also just wasn't enough. Supergirl isn't a kids program that would be a safe space for queer kids in bad situations. It was a visibly gay show, <laughs> with Nia, Kelly, and Alex all being proof of that. Hell, the finale was a lesbian wedding. <laughs> Keeping Supercorp buried in the subtext implies that the lead of the show's queerness must be hidden. Maybe it was to keep sponsors happy or higher-ups happy, and at this point, it feels like we'll never know, but it's still just disheartening. Though, there is also a chance that it was never subtext at all, and truly just an egregious case of queerbait. Queerbait is defined as using queerness purposefully to promote a show or to keep viewers engaged but then never actually delivering. The most insane case of queerbait I have ever seen is with Bacloe from the Pitch Perfect franchise, but especially in regards to the promotion of Pitch Perfect 3. Leading up to the premiere of the film, Universal ran Snapchat ads, which featured Anna Kendrick and Brittany Snow, the actresses who played Becca and Chloe, almost kissing. They then prompt the audience to swipe up for more, which would lead to a link to buy tickets to see the film in theaters. The Universal Pictures UK account even tweeted, One day left, will the Chloe ever happen? In order to bait fans into thinking they would become a couple, only so they would go see the film. Obviously, anybody who has seen Pitch Perfect 3 will know that they did not end up together. And actually, Chloe spent the entire movie chasing after a man called Chicago. It was not... Beck Chloe was not Endgame. Like, that's not what happened. <laughs> As for Supercorp, the showrunners never actually came out and said, Supercorp won't happen, which led to fans being dragged along for years, hoping, beyond hope, that the two would get together in the next season. In contrast to Swan Queen, which was denied over and over again by the showrunners of Once Upon a Time, Supergirl's creative team never denied it in order to keep Supercorps coming back for more. I think we all remember this Kevin Smith moment from San Diego Comic-Con 2019. There's one part of fandom that's like, let's see her go Lex. And then there's another part that's like, let's see them kiss. So, <laughs> Super Corp side of it. So, Also around season five, the promotion of Supergirl started to lean more heavily into the Kara and Lena relationship. The posts on social media included the two of them, and interviews would preview what their dynamic would be like post-reveal before season five began. I mean, hell, their 100th episode even revolved entirely around the Supercorp relationship. In my own personal opinion, I think there was both queer bait and queer subtext at play when it comes to Supergirl. It's undeniable that they used the aversion of a definitive answer about Supercorp to keep Supercorp shippers engaged with the series, and it's clear that the official Supergirl account, as well as many other Warner affiliates and different journalistic sites, used the ship for engagement. Though, I have to point out a main difference in the Beckloe queerbait in comparison to Supercorp. Carr and Lena both ended the series single, with both of their love interests being written out in the previous season for, bo for both of them, whereas Chloe spent all of Pitch Perfect 3 focused on a man. While it is clear that Supergirl capitalized on the popularity of Supercorp for their own personal gain, 
I would argue that we as viewers didn't walk away entirely empty-handed. In analyzing the final episode in particular, I think the Supergirl writers used implicit queer coding in order to throw Supercorp shippers a bone, one that we could then catch and run with to determine where the relationship would go post-canon. In order to analyze the final episode of Supergirl, and specifically Supercorp scenes, there's a bit of critical media analysis terminology that we have to get through first. I apologize in advance, but I promise it will be very helpful. In the textbook Critical Media Studies, an introduction by Brian L. Ott and Robert L. Mack, they go over two different theories that apply to a queer reading of media. One of those theories is called the fourth persona theory, which states that there are different tiers through which a piece of media can be analyzed. The fourth level specifically is an impression of the author or text which some viewers may not ever notice, but can mirror specifically queer experiences. This theory is extremely important to understand when breaking down a number of scenes within the Supergirl finale, and specifically within the final Supercorp conversation. Though, to help illustrate the different persona levels before we start applying them, I'm going to take you through an example just to make sure we're all on the same page here. For this example, I'll use Taylor Swift. A first persona reading of Taylor's music encapsulates a surface-level reading of her as a person from her music and music videos. So from the text that she provides us, we can assume she's a woman who may have a tumultuous relationship with love and with men specifically. A second persona reading of Taylor's music entails what said music says about her audience, again, on a very surface level. From her music and music videos, we can assume her songs are for young, straight women through the high school scenarios in her songs, as well as attractive male love interests in her videos. The third persona does not matter in this context, so I'll skip it to save y'all the headache. So to read Taylor Swift at a fourth persona level would mean to analyze her music through a removal of the first and second personas and look for a deeper meaning. In her music, she often sings about hidden love, a love that is other, and best friendships turning into love. This messaging can be interpreted as queer, and often is interpreted as such by a queer audience. An audience who would pick up on the deeper meaning that relates more closely to their own experiences than the experiences of the original author on that first persona level. So when looking at Supergirl using the fourth persona, it's more about analyzing the lines that the authors, which in this case would be the characters themselves, not the writers, are saying and parsing out a deeper meaning from them. This will apply directly to Lena and Kara in their final scene together, but first we have to go over the second theory. It's called the textual wink. It's similar to the fourth persona theory in that it is a deeper meaning hidden within a text, but it's a bit more blatant. It's... A particular line or scene that may hold a double meaning, where one group can read it one way and a queer audience could read it differently. An example of this I think of all the time is from Merlin. In episode 211, Morgana is speaking to a druid man about her predicament, specifically her magic, and in the scene there's a line that speaks to the queer experience, even though she's not explicitly talking about being queer. She tells the druid, Every day I must look Uther in the eye knowing... If he were to discover who I really am, he'd have me killed. In that scene, she's talking about being a magic user, but a queer audience could read this line as a woman speaking about closeting herself because she's living with a violently homophobic parent. 
in the Supergirl finale, there are so many examples of both the fourth persona theory and the textual wink. So let's go through them all now before discussing what this means for Supercorp's place in the subtext versus queer bait discussion. I'd like to start with Lena, since the episode kicks off with a scene that feels particularly poignant when talking about implicit queerness. In Lena's final conversation with Lillian, she reveals... So I put talismans around the house to stifle what I knew was burgeoning and pushed you towards science. In a queer reading of this revelation, Lena's magic, in a similar way to Morgana, can become synonymous with queerness. In fact, according to Jess Battis in a dissertation titled Queer Spellings, Magic and Melancholy in Fantasy Fiction, magic is inherently queer. Queerness and magic are connected through the rejection of a heteronormative or normal experience of reality, making it easy to draw connections between a magical story in the main text and a queer one in the subtext. By simply changing a few words, Lillian's speech becomes about suppressing her daughter's true emotions rather than her power as a witch, forcing her to become the perfect straight Luther she wanted her to be. Lillian says, I want to set you free and live your life the way you want to live it. This is even furthered by Lena's final conversation with Kara at the wedding when she tells Kara, I realized I didn't have the chance to grow up to be the person I was supposed to be. She's telling her that she was robbed of living an authentic life because of interference from Lillian, and later the pressure to be her biological mother's daughter, which can be read in both a magical sense and a queer one. I realized I hadn't been living my own life, and finally now I am. And it feels amazing. These words to Kara imply a relationship with both her magic and her queerness that finally allows her to live authentically, leaving her in the perfect position to become Kara's partner in the future. This magical storyline came about so late in the series that I genuinely can't imagine another reason for its existence beyond just to create more queer subtext within Lena as a character especially in order for queer fans to have a solid connection point with a character they've championed for years as the show was finally coming to a close. Moving on to the super in Supercorp, Kara's final phone call with Kat, as well as her final conversation with Lena, both have very similar fourth persona readings attached to them. In that final phone call with Kat, Kara expresses, I have different sides to myself. Two parts of me just... They don't really go together. Kara then compares her identity with that of her gay sisters, to which Cat Grant tells her, I hope that you will choose to become your full self. Having Kara compare her own journey with her double life as Supergirl and Kara Danvers with Alex's as a gay woman is extremely coded, and it's only made stronger by the inherently queer nature of the superhero double identity. According to Anna Peppard for The Walrus, queerness and superheroes are connected through their similarities of transformation, disguise, and duality. Queer people often experience a double life and have a secret identity when around different people. They might choose their words more carefully around straight people than they would for other gay people. This sentiment is echoed by Kara in her final conversation with Lena. She tells Lena, Right, I, I'm too afraid to live my own. I don't even know what that would feel like for me. Connecting with someone as my whole self. To not be afraid to just be who I am. In a similar way to Lena and her conversations about magic, 
If you reframe the conversation to be about Kara's queer identity rather than her superhero one, nothing about this conversation would change. Kara would still question if she's allowed to have it all, and Lena would still respond. Your entire life, people telling you who you're supposed to be, and that if you didn't hide your true self, then the people would get hurt. I mean, it's tough to move beyond those type of core wounds. Which just solidifies that Lena sees Kara for who she truly is and will be ready to accept her with open arms. Aside from the clear fourth persona readings of these final conversations, in Kara's phone call with Kat, there's a clear textual wink that makes me truly believe the Supergirl writers intended for these conversations to be picked apart to this degree. While Kara tells Kat about her struggles with her double identity, Kat says, Bifurcated. The word choice here is purposeful, and so is the delivery. The way Kat lingers on the bi and bifurcated acts as a dog whistle to a queer audience, making them do a double take. It's a clear wink to a queer audience that reads Kara as a bisexual character, as a subtle hint to dig deeper here. I can guarantee that any straight person who watched that scene probably didn't even bat an eye, but in the textual wink's intended use, it signals to a queer audience to pay attention. I've said throughout the video that I genuinely think the writers purposefully included Subtextual Supercorp to give us something, but why couldn't they go all the way? Unlike Supercorp Twitter would have you believe, there's no cut Supercorp kiss floating around in the ether, at least as far as I know, uh, so there's really no ending where Supercorp became more than implicit. After the finale, one of Supergirl's producers, Jay Fairber, did an interview with Gray Jones of the TV Writer Podcast to share why Supercorp didn't happen. The answer he gave was vague and a bit phoned in, but that's excusable if the guy ever wants to work again. Uh, but he did say that when you have a character like Supergirl, who has a massive IP and lots of hands tied to her, any changes to that character have to be checked up the line. Producers, executive producers, CW, DC, and Warner Bros. It's very likely that they got a no from any rung of that ladder and decided to keep Supercorp in the subtext because... That's all they could do. And honestly, I think this claim holds water. Most queer Arrowverse characters are either original characters or are canonically queer in the comics. Original characters like Alex Danvers, Kelly Olsen, Nian All, Sarah Lance, and Ryan Wilder are great examples of this. Characters like Kate Kane, Sophie Moore, Constantine, and Poison Ivy are examples of Arrowverse characters that are queer in the comics. They've never made a major sexuality switch for a character, especially in their flagship heroes, which is genuinely what Kara would be considered to be. And it ultimately leads into a much deeper conversation about the overall representation on the CW and how most of the time their representation lives within side characters rather than the faces of their shows, with few exceptions. I covered that topic a bit more extensively in the previous Supercorp episode, but, I mean, thinking about legacies, Nancy Drew, Riverdale, all of those queer characters in those shows are side characters. And in their most popular shows, such as Superman and Lois and The Flash, there's no queer representation to be spoken of, or at least constant queer representation. With all of that said, I don't think doing the best they could with the parameters set around the character absolves them of their sins. 
I mean, over the years, Supercorp fans have been harassed, bullied, and vilified online by writers, actors, and other Supergirl fans alike, and I don't think an implicit ending truly makes up for it. I mean, when you have people on Twitter saying things like queerbait on Supergirl, get a grip, and come on, y'all be watching. You know you want, need to know what happens, and that was from a Supergirl producer. It's hard to reconcile the bones that we were thrown with the abuse that we all suffered for five years. I think what's most important here is that Supercorp was a massive missed opportunity and truly a failed mission. But personally, I also can't bring myself to wish it undone. To the writer's credit, they created an incredible love story between Kara and Lena, one that affected me very deeply. If it truly was a case of them not being allowed to go all the way, then I'm grateful for what we got. Supercorp was made an equal with every relationship on the show, and ending the series with so much overt subtext gave us the closest to Endgame we probably were ever going to get. They could have just easily continued with William and Kara after Season 5, or even sent Kara to the future with Monel, but they didn't. And now we can look back on all the Supercorp moments with the tools to continue their story into the future, using the subtext provided to us in the final season and finale in particular. So much of the coverage around the Supergirl finale was focused on Supercorp, and it's undeniable that the relationship between Lena and Kara will be what defines Supergirl as a show in the pop culture consciousness. This fandom has been through so much and has shown such resilience in the face of awful attacks and gross invalidation throughout the years, and I only hope the best for everyone in the future. I think it's imperative that we fight for what we believe in, and especially in creating awareness about different types of queer representation in media. Even though Supercorp did get an implicit ending, it still wasn't the ending we wanted, or really the ending we deserved. I hope that over the course of my time covering Supergirl, I've given you some tools to be able to analyze the media you consume, and hopefully as we all move on to new shows and new ships, we can all hold the industry accountable for how queer people become collateral damage more often than not. I genuinely love this fandom, this ship, and this show, and I hope this was able to provide some much-needed closure. Thank you for listening. And that's all. That's all I have for today. Um, I know that this probably was not the Supercorp episode that a lot of people were expecting. Um, I'm sure a lot of people were expecting more anger. I'm sure a lot of people were expecting more parallels. And I know that... But like I said right at the top, I, I just don't think that going through all the times that, like, you know, Supercorp and, and Brainia were written similarly adds much to the conversation beyond just I mean yes it 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 solidified them as on equal playing ground with every other relationship on the show but I just don't think going through all of those times is extremely productive um and I I hope that everybody found a lot of value in in this version of of my super court video I I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm really proud of it. So I, I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, you can definitely let me know what you think in the comments below, or you can tweet me at televisepod and let me know what you think. Um, I mean, like I said in my finale episode, I'm going to miss covering Supergirl, but I'm not quite done yet because 
I'm going to, we're going to be doing a Supergirl retrospective sort of thing um, where we talk about our favorite seasons, favorite episodes, favorite moments. And yeah, so I definitely will be seeing you all soon. Thank you for being patient uh, and waiting for this episode. I know that it might have seemed a little bit um, short for the time I took to make it, but I I really did do a lot of research and, and carefully um, considered everything that I wanted to say in this episode. So I, I do hope that you all enjoyed it. Like I said, let me know, tweet me, comment down below. Um, and I will see you guys again soon for a Supergirl retrospective, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do from there. Uh, but this is definitely not the end. And I also wanted to thank everybody for sending me their Spotify wraps. Uh, it's so cool to see those every year. I, I love seeing them so much. And, and yeah, I just, yeah, I love, I love seeing them. So yeah, anyway, I will see you guys pretty soon. Bye.